out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to the 137th edition of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. the Wolf. And I will be joined, as always, by my partner in crime from the east coast of the U.S., Gary Action Jackson. And we appreciate you tuning in for our Leonard Skinner show last week. Very American band celebrating their 50th anniversary of their debut album right around the 4th of July, which I hope everybody had a good and safe time during. But this week we're not doing an American band, and we're not doing a UK band, which is usually our motif here on the Ugly American Werewolf of London. We're actually going down under. As soon as I say that, I know you've got an idea of who it is. That's right, we're doing a show on ACDC, but we're not going to review an album this time. We're actually fortunate enough to have rock author Martin Popoff of Canada Coming on our show. Now, Martin has joined us before as he is a fellow member of the Pantheon podcast family of, of music podcasts. And he's written, I don't know, 115, 120 books. I don't know how many books he's written. He's written a ton of them. We had him on last year to talk about Blue Oyster Cult with us for a little while. But now he's got this big, beautiful ACDC 50 book which is a coffee table book. It's big, and it's very colorful. It's got all sorts of images from the band over time, whether it's them playing live in the studio, shots of the rare album covers, backstage passes, whatever it might be. And it's broken down into 50 stories that really kind of encapsulate turning points, inflection points, or just important times in the history of the band. It's a really, really cool book, and we're so happy to have Martin on to talk about it. We're going to jump in with him here very shortly. Quickly, though, we want to take care of just a little bit of business. As I mentioned, we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family of about 100 different music shows. Not all rock music. There's something in there for everybody. And you can learn more at PantheonPodcast.com or follow them at Pantheon Pods. And, of course, we need to give a shout-out to our sponsor, RareVinyl.com. Based in the U.K., RareVinyl.com has been doing this for 40 years, folks, and they have over a quarter of a million items in stock. I've met their team those who procure the records, those who sort through them, those who catalog them, those who ship them off. They're amazing folks, and they do a great job of not only getting you high-quality, pristine records, and it's not only records, you can get CDs or DVDs or singles or tour programs. Lots of amazing items there. So you can go to rarevinyl.com to find that, and you can use code UGLY, U-G-L-Y, to save 10% off your orders. And they ship all over the world. So I don't care if you're in Japan or Jamaica, Go to rarevinyl.com, use the code UGLY, you're going to save 10% off your order. You buy enough, it might just knock the shipping right off, which is always a big help. So you want to celebrate something, you want to get something special for somebody, or you're just looking for something that's hard to find. They have things from all over the world. Go to rarevinyl.com, use code UGLY, save yourself 10%. Now back to Martin Popoff in his ACDC book. I never really met anybody who didn't like ACDC. ACDC is kind of a foundation of bedrock, of hard rock. And you may go different ways down the heavy metal hard rock tree, but at some point you're going to get to the ACDC branch, and most people are pretty comfortable there. And when I was in high school, Razor's Edge, Thunderstruck, Money Talks came out. It was huge. It was big resurgence for ACDC, and that album really helped keep them on top, got them to kind of walk over the whole grunge debacle that a lot of people got thrown out of or tried to catch up to, and they just kind of kept doing their own thing, which I think we're all pretty happy about. Just one sound, straight ahead, no ballads, four on the floor, crunch, 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 sophomoric lyrics, and it's all brilliant. Everybody likes ACDC. You may not like every single song, or every single album, but you know that there's some ACDC songs that you do love. And we talked to Martin about that. So let's stop with me talking. Let's get to Martin Popoff talking about his great book, ACDC 50, 
right here on The Wolf. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. So do you do you feel that you're Rock's preeminent rock writer? I mean, we just had Mick Wall on the show not long ago, and I remember reading his stuff growing up and seeing him on Behind the Music. So I'm like, man, Mick's a, Mick's a big-time rock writer. I'm like, yeah, but he doesn't have the, the volumes that Martin does. I mean, you've written more books than Jackson and I have collectively read. <laughs> well, you know, he's 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 better than me, and he's uh, he's basically more, I'd say, more famous and more tapped into bands than me. So we'll, we'll put him ahead and probably a couple others uh, that I'm forgetting right now. But <laughs> First of all, the book, the ACDC at 50 book, is killer, man. It's great. And it's a coffee table book, right? So it's not just, I'm going to take you detail by detail through everything that happened on every day as they got started or, you know, all this kind of stuff. But it's that doesn't mean it isn't detailed, right? I mean, basically the concept is you went through 50 big points in their careers from the very beginning all the way through to the end and then told stories around it. But I mean, what makes it such an amazing book and a coffee table book is all the pictures, right, of the band, of all the different album covers, single covers, backstage passes, whatever it may be. Plus, thanks to whichever lead singer it may have been, plus Angus, they are visually interesting, aren't they? They're, they're, yeah, yeah. There's something to behold, right? So so yeah. let's, I mean, I know you're the writer and you got to do all that kind of research, but was like it just as difficult to get all the right pictures and stuff to go with? All the stories that you were writing? No, the beautiful part of dealing with this publisher and my editor over there, Dennis Pernu. I mean, they're just such a great company to deal with because all of that they do, right? And Dennis oh. knows his music too. So he's out there thoughtfully picking what goes with what. And, uh, you know, I just I just get to leave all that to them. You know, I, I turn in a few things from my collection or some some photographs that I have sure. or buddies, whatever. But I mean, generally, um, they do all that and the layouts are just gorgeous. Right. So, yeah, I just have to come up with that text. Even that was their concept. This whole at 50 series mm-hmm. thing, like I've done a David Bowie. I've done a Bowie at 75. Right. right. And I've got a kiss at 50 coming. Right. Oh, nice. 
But uh, but yeah, so that's all their concept. I mean, the challenge for me, I love coming up with the 50. That's that's the fun part. And then there's a little back and forth on that. And sometimes Dennis is thinking with his photo hat on, Mm -hmm. thinking I can't get pictures of that, you know, maybe pick a different one or whatever. But, you know, the challenge for me is 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 keeping the word count down to what they want. Right. Oh, right. Uh, In in so many cases. Right. So it's like you want to write more and you're frustrated and, you know, you're very limited in what you can do with this thing but you know i inject my opinion in there from from time to time and some decent writing once in a while and so personal stories in there too yeah 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 a little bit yeah 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 well so one thing that mick was explaining to us because you know mick has gotten sideways with some of his subjects over the years you know uh and he's like look i don't care about their feelings i don't care about you know what's going on their head the only person i care about is the reader and their experience reading this book. Whereas I've seen you, obviously you care about the reader, but I've also seen some quotes with you saying, you know what, you know, I I don't want to make their family feel bad about, you know, this rock star or shine them in too poor of a light. I mean, what is all is going through your head when you're, I mean, you have to be brutally honest, but you don't have to be a jerk about it, right? Yeah, exactly. And and it's like, well, this is about different career highlights. That's kind of stuff is not going to come up too often. But, mm-hmm. you know, frankly, across all the books I've done, I've done like 115 books, right? So, right. you know, most of that stuff that, that I have to wrestle with and get me in trouble, I don't even have anyways. I don't even mm. have that information right all the gossip stuff right and the other thing is i've always been across those books i really like talking about the records right so it's like every song the album cover the production the lyrics the you the guitar playing what studio they're at that's the stuff i love the most and want to get in there the most so that's always what i make a beeline for kind of thing right that's that's what i really want so yeah but i'm sure mick is is really he might be talking that game but i mean i'm sure he doesn't want to make enemies of people who are friends or get sued or uh or like <laughs> just burn a bridge and can't ever talk to that band ever again you know that crosses through every journalist's mind right now you mentioned at the beginning of this book that acdc is your favorite band was there any different any difference in writing this book knowing that that goes up and down all the time like on any <laughs> given day i'll have a different favorite band but i mean it's it's usually a cycle of four or five it's not yeah. it's not crazy out of control but no i mean uh you know i i fortunately to be able to write the book i'm not one of these bon scott era only guys mm-hmm. um you know, there's a lot of that. And I, and I am that guy for a lot of bands. Def Leppard uh, would be one. You know, first right. three albums, that's it. And I'm just disgusted by them after that. Right. And right. 90s Aerosmith and things like that. Right. So I am that guy for a bunch of bands, Um, but I'm not I'm not for ACDC. And, uh, you know, I, I, I rank Flick of, Flick of the Switch as my third favorite ACDC album. So. So, yeah, uh, no, it's uh, it was it was a fun book to write for that reason, because I do have this long history. I got into them in I guess it was 70. Well, yeah, I'm sure it was 77 because that's when I got my first as a new release would have been Let There Be Rock. And I bought the Canadian high voltage at the same time in in 1977. On a family vacation across country. Yeah, exactly. In Winnipeg. Yeah. Looking at this record saying, oh, why why is there just one guy? They don't look like they're really rocking out on the front (laughs) cover. And it's a song called Bad Boy Boogie. It's got boogie in the title. How good is this going to be? That that logo looks a little old school and i'm thinking this this looks like it might not be particularly heavy but but we got it home right and uh 
Ooh. And it was, uh, as I always tell the story, it's it's uh, it was the third album ever. Uh, well, it might have been the second because I don't know when the Sex Pistols came out in 77. But uh, it was it was one of the first three albums that had no mellow songs on it, like nothing we we called a lousy right. uh, in our, in our <laughs> uh, nomenclature. Right. So uh, so it was literally every song was heavy, although we were a little suspicious of Problem Child. We thought that was a little poppy. So it might be right, right on the edge. Right. But But yeah, it was that and the Sex Pistols and Rainbow Rising were the first three, right? Oh, so good. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we got it. We, we're willing to tear into this book a little bit and, and talk some ACDC here with you. But first, I have a small bone to pick with you, Mr. Writer Martin oh, Popoff, right. if that is your real name. <laughs> uh, so, of course, you know, we all have to be active on social media, whether we want to be or not. And uh, I come across this uh, article in Goldmine. Goldmine Magazine. Yep. It's about the top 20 supergroups of all time. Okay. And actually, the reads, the way I came across it, you know, we are, when I was based in the UK, we did a lot of prog stuff, which is a very British, in my opinion, a very British subgenre of rock. And some of the greats, Genesis, King Crimson, yes, Pink Floyd, on and on, they hail from the UK. And we have done a lot of work with Yes and Asia, interviewing some of their people and, and promoting some of their stuff. And one of my followers, or someone I follow, is like, hey, look, John Wetton was in three of these top 20 bands of all time, including UK, who you put up you know, pretty high, King Crimson also, you know, awfully high on the list, obviously. But number 20 was Asia out of all these bands. Okay, the first album alone, Puts them in the top 10, Martin, okay? <laughs> Number one selling album in America in 1982, okay? Some of these other ones you have on here, all of their records put together does add up to the sales of Asia. Yeah. Not to mention the cultural impact of Heat of the Moment, perhaps the greatest pop rock song of the early 80s and one of the greatest of all time. Now explain yourself, sir. Well, I, I think there's got to be a, a rewriting uh, that's got to happen about that album <laughs> being way too overrated, right? And then, oh, and then no. things going down. I don't like the production. I find the production noisy. Uh, John Wetton's kind of pushing a lot of air on these weird songs. And and the King Crimson that I put up there, way, I think I put it number one. That's right. Was the, uh, was the red, blue, and yellow King Crimson uh, specifically, right? Mm -hmm. It was that version of them as a super group but uh that's right yeah i don't know I, it's uh it, i just i just feel that album probably we romanticize it a little too much i i like uk better so. <laughs> all right well we'll just have to set that to the side now look we know that asia was really just a point in time right it, it, and in 1982 the record industry was down 1983 boom it exploded but 1982 i mean record sales overall were down and it gave room for something like an asia to be pushed in there by an ambitious david geffen right and i was know. i was unaware of that i i always i always bring up 1979 as being a down year and that's that's i've done many shows about that but i, I didn't know that really about 82 yeah i learned that later well, because well yeah. because whenever i tell people that asia was the number one selling album in america in 82 they're like what that can't be right and they scramble to the internet to find out 
then I'm right. And they're like, huh? You know, because 83 and 84 was Thriller. 85 was born in the USA. And then you start to get stuff like Whitney Houston. And, you know, 1980 was like Pink Floyd and, you know, Elton John and stuff like that. Huge names that are, of course, known by everybody. And everyone's like, "Interesting. who even was in Asia? What song did they have? Like, it was even the moment pretense, but... You know now now what now was that a, a particularly recessionary year or just by coincidence no huge bands put on an album that year yeah I, I I'm not exactly sure what all the different pieces of the puzzle were I mean I know mm-hmm. MTV comes out in 1981 and that changes some things uh and then you know certain smaller bands who may not have even gotten a sniff are now going gold and platinum just because they're on MTV. But uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I guess you you saw the end of the Pink Floyds and the end of the Led Zeppelins and there's no more Deep Purple. Aerosmith is on the outs. You know, the huge bands of the 70s are kind of gone. And now we're just starting to get the, the wave of the 80s coming back up here, right? So interesting, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was just kind of a void. It was just kind of a weird in-between void because I don't remember... I, was not into you know finances in 1982, but I don't remember any big recession talks in that time. Yeah, I think I think interest rates were 14 percent or something for a little while there, right? They got yeah, crazy. Really but that's high. the dawn yeah. of the Reagan era and things mm-hmm. starting to take off as far yeah. as the stock market and the economy and all that. And then I think I mean a lot of things hit in '83. Journeys, you know, Frontiers hit, and obviously Michael Jackson's Thriller is the big one. But your boys, <laughs> Def Leppard, had a big one, and um, you Boys. know. Yeah. Duran Police synchronicity was yeah. huge. People like Duran Duran and Minute Work and the Rhythmics were still, you know, coming up in a big way. And, and so that whole 80s techno new wave, new romantics, whatever they want to call that, that was really starting to boom. Thanks a lot to MTV. But the old big stadium rockers of the 70s were kind of all gone at this point, unless, you know, eventually ZZ Top starts to reinvent themselves thanks to MTV and a little slick production of their own you know kind of yeah zz is 83 and that does amazing but in 82 scorpions did as good as well almost as good as they were ever going to get blackout was big um judas priest had screaming for vengeance which was big ozzy had an 80 and an 81 which were big but they sat out 82 Mm -hmm. uh black sabbath mob rules did okay eventually went gold um so they were doing okay blue oyster cultist now sitting one out because they did well in 81 with fire of unknown origin, fire of unknown origin yeah ecdc is doing well with uh for those about to rock which is you know a a you know a bust compared to the previous one but still <laughs> right doing doing well i mean um and then we've got def leopard in 81 and then in 83 so yeah interesting and then i guess what you're saying is uh is we wouldn't find any of the big you know bands that i don't know anything about the big non-metal bands Mm -hmm. yes is sitting out all the way from 80 all the way to 83 that's right Right? that's right so 83 was big and so for whatever 82 was just a little week overall and then asia does well for geffen and he forces them back into the studio like make another one in 83 at the studio in your home country there. And yeah, it's not good because they, they rushed it. They forced it. You know, the, the videos were good, but they, they didn't let them take time to gel. And so that's, and eventually that was kind of the end of Asia after that. So I know that for most people, Asia is a non-entity. It's just for us, the two of us, me and Jackson, special place in our hearts. So I just had to give you a hard time. That's yeah. all. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> Hi, this is Carl Palmer, and you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf. But no, let's let's get into why we're here in this big, beautiful book of ACDC at 50. You're right in that you, you talk throughout here how the, the youngs are a little closed off. It's not like everybody knows everything about them, like so many of the other big bands or 
other people who you know have a record that sold 50 million copies, right? What was it like trying to dive in to try to get some of these facts? I mean, obviously, you're not talking to them so much. So who, where are you finding all this good stuff from? Wow. Well, there have been a lot of ACDC books out yeah. there and the internet and all that. But, you know, on, on this subject, this pathology of these guys, it's like they had a pretty rough upbringing and then they had to emigrate far away and all that. And then, and then, you know, they, they come up and they see, you know, the uh, corruption of, of their brothers and other bands in Australia, you know, they're all, they're, they're all like seasoned veterans in, 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 terms of what they've seen coming up and then and then yeah they have to deal with they have to deal with being basically a poor band from 1973 through to about 1978 mm-hmm. um so you know they've had a they've had even a hard time the rise was not super fast either right So, you know, and I also have another sort of theory about, you know, this is more along the lines of why you don't see a lot of these guys do interviews, right? You know, number one, they they do look at the downside and say, oh, I, I got to watch what I say or whatever. Now, these guys, they are kind of closed off. And so, you know, they're smart about what they say. But I have a funny theory about ACDC. I mean, you know, ACDC, it's not that they didn't do any interviews, but they're known for not having done a ton of interviews, sure. right? And I often wonder if uh, after a while they realize it's really hard to talk about our kind of music in particular. I mean, there ain't much to the music. There ain't much to the lyrics. Um, you know, what do we talk about, right? It's it's not it's not tales from topographic oceans, right? So I I, I bet after a little while they go, I, I'm just running out of things to say. I'm sick and tired of hearing myself say Chuck Berry or whatever. Right. <laughs> uh, and you, you you really wonder about that. And and other guys I've noticed that I remember seeing a Prince interview and realizing I can see why this guy doesn't do interviews because he he's not very articulate, right? He just basically has got no insight about what he's doing, right? So I'm sure some of these guys realize also I'm just not good at this, right? Maybe. But Brian Johnson is a pretty engaging guy and, you know, quick with a joke. Yep. And, you know, you, you think, well, you could get a lot from him, but it, it just doesn't seem like you get a lot about those guys from him. It's it's about more his, his experience, right? There's two things there, I bet, though. Uh, so number one, number one, he's he's probably somewhat instructed or or learned through the corporate culture of the of the, you know, don't say any bad stuff about us. I mean, this we're, we're your meal ticket, we're your job and all that. And, and, you know, we are a secretive bunch and we do circle the wagons. That's number one. Number two, I've noticed with these guys over time, as they get so famous, it's just a natural thing that happens to the human brain for these hallowed few is that they get so famous that they that they start to it it becomes like a second nature uh, to make sure that you don't say anything too controversial because it's so important when you open your mouth. Right. right. So all of these guys become much, much more politically correct and wily and canny over time. And Brian Johnson strikes me a little bit like that over time where you can just see him be, you know, it looks like it's all super off the cuff and all this stuff. But but it's like, wait a minute, did he really say anything there? You know, or, or even Rob Halford sometimes I always complain about him like he's just so he's so polite and elegant. He and all is, this, yeah. but, he's, but he can use a lot of words to say nothing. That's right. right. <laughs> 
So. Well, it, you know, it, it's interesting because we got a chance to talk to Chris Slade a little bit, and he made some comments about how, make no mistake, Malcolm Young is in charge of everything, up to and including, here's what you're going to play. I understand it was different because he came in as a is not an original member of the band, but I kind of get the feeling, even from reading this book, that there's always that, you know, the, the Malcolm Young eye is on everything, and everything has to get run past him, and he... He was the gatekeeper and you did it his way or that was it. So maybe you're right. Johnson just knows you say something nice or it's going to be very uncomfortable for you. Yeah. And it's so weird. It's like all these guys have to do is make 35 minutes of this really <laughs> simple music every three or four or five years or even more. Right? right. So it's like it's like what they really have to do. And and that's why I, I do admire them for that whole you hear these stories about them sitting down and agonizing over all that stuff. Right. And having songs that don't make the album, but not that many. It's not like I've, I've heard stories about Aerosmith come coming to the table with 32 mm-hmm. songs to come up with what's going to go on their album and stuff. And then you hear these B-sides and unreleased songs and they're like completely finished. They're like aircraft carriers of songs right they're just so so considered right but you know you do hear the odd story of them just sitting there and going over and getting that groove going and trying these songs at different speeds and things like that right and playing with the parts that's really cool that that at least when they're making this this you know short amount of music very simple music they're 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 really you know really putting their heart and soul into it to do but you know and but the reality of their lives is that they're essentially live performers right so we all you know that's the other thing that i always find funny in interviews it's like sometimes you feel like you're you're not you're not talking on the same wavelength to these guys you know when you bring up some ancient album of theirs right and and you start hitting them up with memories of it and stuff and it's like well the only songs i remember from it are the three we play live all the time i don't remember <laughs> any of the rest of it right so and, and yeah, like you that's said, their job. So, and like you said too, maybe you were thinking, maybe oh, you know, it's this artistic vision or something. Maybe it's not. Maybe we're just there to, like you said, play these songs, hammer them out, and play them live, and then just move on with your life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They, I, I swear. Yeah, on in a general sense, in a trend, in a generalizing way, these guys think way less of their albums than we do. <laughs> right? As being the important thing in their lives, right? As being as being like what I do every day, breathing, mm-hmm. walk, and playing live, you know, all of that stuff uh, is is way more of their identity than than just that record. Yeah, no doubt. Well, being that most all of them, at least their origin is from the UK, from Great Britain, it seemed like making it in Britain was a was their goal. It was kind of a more of a big deal coming from Australia than it was to make it in America. Not that they didn't want to make it in America. And it, and that got pushed back a couple of times for various reasons. But it was like that was the goal. Like we'll tour Australia, but then the real thing to do is let's go break it in London. Let's go break it in back in Glasgow or you know back in the you know Scotland where they hail from, which would be the entree to Europe. And then maybe America was after that. You didn't get too much into that, but is that true? Yeah, I mean, that was familiar to them. They got signed out of Britain. Mm-hmm. So that's that's another thing. Or like signed, you know, outside of Australian Britain. And then I think the other 
interesting thing about it is um, they, they just seemed to have their ear to the ground and they knew it was kind of happening over there. There was the whole punk mm-hmm. thing. And then we know we know all that. You know, there's there's that probably overspoken story about them. Oh, can they be slotted in with punks and all that? But what I really like also is that they really are because of this, uh, this often being in Britain thing. They really are almost an honorary new wave of British heavy metal band. I've I've done various audio shows and video shows about honorary new wave of British heavy okay. metal bands. Right. And, and they, they definitely seem to be one of those. They seem to really be part of that scene, even though they're from Australia. Well, they had the sound, right. They toured with some of those guys and uh, their, their first albums are coming out around the same time, but we got to talk a little bit about record company issues and the releases and all that kind of stuff, because it's a little fakakta, you know I mean? It's not that rare for a band to release an album that has a different track in the U.S. versus in Europe or whatever. But as far as things would come out in Australia and then they wouldn't get released in the U.S. or they would get released for U.K., Europe, but it would be different and then have a different cover. And then it would be a few years. We can get we can talk all day about the Dirty Deeds record, you know, and, and that kind of thing there. But that that's a big part of their story that I don't think a lot of people understand as far as for the most bands. I mean, you know, any of the bands you've, you've done books about, you have one album, maybe it doesn't come out at the exact same time, but for the most part, it comes out around the same time. And then you go on to the next one, whereas that's not the case for ACDC at all, really. Yeah, I mean, and it's smart. They did it that way, too, really only because of the debut. The debut is really wobbly, mm-hmm. the, the uh, original Australian high voltage. But after that, your TNT and your your dirty deeds and high and are basically the ACDC sound. I mean, I consider those two to go together and then let there be rock turns it up a notch. It's much more powerfully produced and uh, maybe the songs are better. It's way more in your face sort of thing. Yeah. It actually seems less commercial to me than than the the North American high voltage. But yeah, so that happens. This all this all happened with another band I love a lot from down there as well, Angel City or the Angels, right? They had a mess of the releases like that as well. But yeah, different album covers, swapping a song or two off of them. So the high voltage was a compilation. Let there be rock is more or less in intact, except for I think one one switch. Right. And then pow, uh, Power Age has you know different mix, slightly different cover. Uh, yeah, they, they're all having different covers, kind of thing. And then the big deal, of course, is, is that whole thing when uh, when Dirty Deeds Dunder Cheap comes out after Back in Black and confuses everybody, and Bon Scott's dead, and he's on this one, and that they get ticked off about it, and that causes a break with management and you know they're mad at the label and all that stuff but then it sells like crazy i mean it was a good business move bringing that right or would it have been a good business move bringing it out when it was first supposed to come out and what was that 76 it was supposed to come out 77 something like that yeah well you yeah you never know i mean you're just a baby band and it's a hard sell i mean it's not the most well i mean it's it's pretty darn commercial in a in a weird way. I mean, it's a, they're a very commercial band, but they're they're on their own. They're the only ones doing this kind right. of thing, right? Um, but yeah, it, it's totally accessible. There's nothing nothing inaccessible about it at all. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, I, I think I think that version of High Voltage was a was a perfect step forward. I mean, it was just a bunch of all the really good songs all put together mm-hmm. from that sort of era, from that two album era. And uh, it was, it was a smart thing to do. So you had that and then you had let there be rock and then you had power age. And it seemed to be pretty much, uh, pretty much good stuff. I mean, my favorite album of, of theirs 
in total is is either on any given day power age or highway to hell so uh yeah it was uh that late 70s totally accessible end of the bon scott era that's 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 you that's when you were growing up you're riding home on your bike with them strapped to the back you know yeah. uh that yeah. still hasn't changed. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. Yeah, love, love Highway to Hell. Um, you know, we just in the ACDC songs ranking recently on a buddy of mine's show, and I had to touch too much and walk all over you as my top two favorite ACDC songs. Love them to death. Yeah, I think that's as good as it gets. You know, Back in Black's pretty, pretty good too. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the next one, right. but yeah, I'd say Flick of the Switch. Things pick up better there. Um, then it starts to go downhill again. So. Right. I was going to say, uh, I do love Highway to Hell. You can't badmouth that at all, but touch too much. They always have the thing about how, you know, what's the greatest line, first line of a song. That's pretty good when he's talking yeah, about yeah. one of those nights where you turn out the lights and yeah. everything comes into view. Yeah, yeah. Yippers. <laughs> uh- You know, one of the things that you said too in the book was flick the switch. And I've never really listened to that a whole bunch once or twice, but I think now I'm going to have to go back and really take a listen to that because you definitely sold it as being an underrated gem in the catalog. Yeah. You know, flick of the switch is basically, I mean, people kind of put down the production a little, it is a little raw, a little, it is a little mm-hmm. mid rangey, but it's, it's super heavy. It sounds confident. You know, that's the other thing with, with a lot of these albums and bands, if you're on board and you're championing them, any, any shortcomings, it's like, well, you, you, you go, well, they know what they're doing. You, they have confidence. I have confidence in them. And sometimes you don't have confidence in ACDC. Like, like I think uh, blow up your video. I don't have confidence in the band, <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah, flick of the switch is like they're, 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 they're cool again album, right? They're, they're like, for those about to rock was a little corporate. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they're kind of not cool again, mm-hmm. you know, even though it's right in the middle of the new wave British heavy metal, but in, in 1983 with flick of the switch, it's like they can compete again and they're, and they're bad boys again. And, and Scorpions is now starting to be not very cool with love at first thing. Right. right? So like these guys are, are, you know, they're, they're outlaws. They went and produced <laughs> this themselves, you know, and that weird album cover that, uh, is not trying to be awesome. Right. It's just, it's just, they, they totally have confidence and uh, and and that's yeah, that, that that was a great part of that record. But that, that's a cool part of the book, too, is you really explain kind of what was going on at the time about what, you know, they had come from being having great commercial success, but they eh, I don't really like that. They were tired of maybe the mutlangs of the world just beating things to death. They wanted raw. They wanted, like you said, to be bad boys again. So Malcolm says, I'm going to I'm going to produce this thing, which, it, you know, as you point out, you what were you saying something about how you need a producer for the bullshit meter on the songs, you know, to sniff that out. But it explains why you got what you got on that record. Yeah, it's it. it I, I I think it's perfectly fine. I mean, I just I just try to. It, it just seems quite often people bring up the production, and now I keep bringing it up. But I mean, to me, it it sounds perfectly okay. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never really felt that way 
you know, at the time, but yeah, it's got, it's just definitely got some good rockers on it. It's very, uh, very electric sounding. And uh, yeah, so, so you get the evolution of Mutt Lang into his basically obsessive, weird, almost like <laughs> mental Ill- illness level, right? right. Um, you know, Def Leppard is going to run headlong into that. There's just no way ACDC could have done another album with him. I mean, they realized they were fed up on For Those About to Rock. It's like he was already too far gone and he was only 40% of when where he was going to get to, right? right. So so there he's, he's essentially the Mutt Lang of high and dry. And then fortunately, yeah, they, they never got to see the, the Mutt Lang of Pyromania. Or, or, or Hysteria, which... If you've ever been to your own Wikipedia page, Martin, there's a big chunk of it about how you give hysteria zero yeah. out of 10 stars. Yeah, <laughs> that gets brought up all the time. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, poor, poor Def Leppard with their diamond selling record and zero stars yeah. from Martin Popoff. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure they're very concerned. What do they care what I think? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. But there's a neat video of, of Joe Elliott on the on the bus uh, a, a year or two ago, and he's he's got my David Bowie book, and he's showing it. Oh, it's one of the new things I bought. You know, oh, this is so cool. And it's like, I'm going, I wonder if he knows who that is. <laughs> <laughs> that book, like, I no longer like this book. Yeah. <laughs> And over the years, you know, it's funny. It's it's like I always wanted to make sure any chance I had any deaf, I could get any Def Leppard interviews. I better get them because one day they're going to stop giving me interviews. Right. And then I noticed uh, about 10 years ago on perfectly normal situations where they probably should have been talking to me about something. You know, I, I got a no. Right. And I'm thinking, ah, now they know. <laughs> <laughs> I finally read that review. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, uh, no, but what was interesting to me was because uh, honestly, I mean, I came in when Back in Black came out. I was like seven. Right. Me and Jackson were, were seven. So he, obviously we listen to classic rock. It gets into our brains over the years. We turned teenagers in the late 80s. It's must have listens. And so everyone of my generation then, they knew Highway to Hell because it's got the big title track. It's the last Bon Scott album. It sold very well. It's kind of got that mutt initial good production on it. Everyone knows Back in Black. But in reading the book, it seems that the real ACDC heads, the ones who really appreciated them their whole careers, they really looked to Let There Be Rock, which you might consider to be about their best, maybe. And then Powerage, which to me really gets overlooked because it's, it's right before, yeah. you know, the, the last big one with Bond. And then obviously Back in Black comes after that. So Power Age gets overlooked quite a bit. And it took it a while to uh, register as like gold and platinum and double platinum and all that. Really needed the, the sales of the next two uh, to kind of get them to the next place. But I mean, you still, despite the commerciality of Highway to Hell and Back in Black, I think you would still put those two as sonically maybe better than those. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think my thoughts on those records are and, and a lot of people love Power Age. I mean, a lot of big ACDC fans. I mean, generally, I'm I'm of the consensus of, of most ACDC fans that Power Age Highway to Hell are the best. And and I think um, Power Age is kind of like a laid back, charming. It's a little southern rocking. It's it's a little simple. You know, even the heavy songs on it, like Kicked in the Teeth, was pretty simple. Rock and Roll Damnation. I remember when that came out as an event single, we were horrified. It, it was so poppy Uh-oh. right <laughs> really worried about it right uh and the production is it 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 also is the warmest and the most charming between those two records to me i i have this happen all the time and i i went on pete pardo's sea of tranquility which i do every 
Friday morning. And um, we did a show about how I always seem to have this boring trend of of falling into loving late 70s stuff and not so much the early 70s stuff. And to me, as you get earlier, I get kind of depressed by old albums. And <laughs> to me, Let There Be Rock feels to me a little bit like Volume 4 feels to me by Black Sabbath. I just find it a little uh. bit too nasty and humorless and cold over time you know I, i've always loved it but i mean it's it's fallen down a little bit for me and then when you get to highway to hell you get you get basically a just a good correct production with no personality to it there's no real mutt lang to it it's just basically all the sounds are dialed in properly right. um, but that's that's them being kind of like way more professional that's the big thing mutt brought to it is he made them routine things more and he got the backing vocals better and all that sort of stuff right so that's it it's the most professional of those three right and then the second most professional of those three is let there be rock and then the third third most is power age power age is like let that let your hair down seems like you know they're having a couple of beers making that record right and the other two don't sound like yeah yeah Well, and there's something to be said about a fourth record, too. I mean, and, you know, everyone's like, you got your whole life to write your first record. And so every hit, every good thing, everything you've got goes in that first one. Then you got three months to maybe six months to write the second. There's definitely a sophomore slump to a lot of them. And then a third album could be like, okay, now we're trying to find our new way. And then fourth can be really make or break, like your compatriots Rush. If they hadn't made 2112, we wouldn't be talking about Rush today. We, we didn't know who they are, right? And so that Let There Be Rock was that time like, okay, now we... We're not just kids from Australia anymore. We've been to a few places. We've reworked our sound. We know what works. We know which songs the crowds kind of like and which ones that they don't. So this is us trying to forge, all right, here's what we believe we are. And so it's kind of the foundation of, of everything that comes after. Although although they they change again on Power Age, which is the funny thing. I mean, the, the big thing about Let There Be Rock, the big personality of it is the massive molten, molten guitars, right? right. It's just so distorted sounding that record it's kind of like flick of the switch basically so it's it's got these huge huge guitars the songs again the songs are a little cold and humorless right they're a little yeah. snarly right yeah. and then that changes again and then they change again and then they get you know and then when brian comes in i, I remember when brian came in there was absolute 100 percent acceptance of him everybody loved yeah. it loved back in black there's no problem at, at all with him coming in and but it, it's funny so back back then you know that was that was actually still considered heavy metal and you know when you think back and you think of why was it heavy metal i mean number one it's distortion pedal guitar all the way through i mean there's no no ballads but the other thing is uh his voice was almost even more extreme and more metal than bonds was in a way i mean it's it's quite a shriek in a way yeah that, right so <laughs> So it's like you had this really uh, transgressive vocalist. It's it's like when I think back to why why did I ever like, you know, because it was the first rock and roll I ever heard. I remember like when I was six and seven, I started getting into music and and I heard like Steppenwolf and Three Dog Night and CCR. And I'm thinking, why did I like Steppenwolf and CCR at all? Right. And um, and it's because 
they had a heavy metal vocal. Everything else wasn't heavy, but they had they had a rough and tumble bad boy kind of vocal snarl thing. And that's and then when we did all those metal evolution uh, episodes at Banger Films, when mm-hmm. we did that whole series, you know, we we explored that a little more. And, and and you know, you realize that as a kid, vocals can be heavy metal, and and it can tilt a band to heavy just by having a heavy vocalist. You know, what one thing that you brought up uh, in the book was people who were considered for the job and one was Naughty Holder mm-hmm. from Slade. And I, that then that just got me thinking, well, what would that have sounded like with him up there instead of uh, instead of Brian Johnson? Well, it's not I, the rock on tour, though. <laughs> it would yeah. it would have sounded good. I mean, they would have said, lose yeah. the clothes right away. We got to we got to do a fashion makeover <laughs> on you. That's for sure. Probably. right? Um, they would have done that immediately. Sure. Yeah, it would have sounded good. We know that. Yeah. 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 Unfortunately, I think that that's, that's definitely a band that never caught on in the United States was Slade. Yeah. No, and then I I love I love still I still to this day I've I've every time it comes up that Brian's in danger of being not an ACDC anymore I I still think Mark Storacci is just the perfect choice from Crocus right mm. but you know I I remember talking to him at length about it and his whole thing was we were as big as they were why would I why would I leave my band for that band I love my guys we at were as big as they were in 1979 1980 yeah. right there's no reason to leave it, it, it would have been a lateral move and and you know ticking off all his buddies and and certainly nobody nobody would have expected back in black to perform like it did yeah. well you know it it had a great story going in and there's a lot of excitement around this band so so i think the thing that that when when you say they wouldn't have expected it is uh is there could have been wholesale rejection of this new singer business idea right 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 mm-hmm. and that's the two things about it that that strike me on back in black is a as you mentioned, there isn't wholesale rejection. There isn't David Lee Roth versus Sammy Hagar kind of thing. Part of that is David is still alive and he has his own band competing, whereas Bond's gone. So if you want the band to continue, there has to be somebody. Mm-hmm. But the other part of it is Brian didn't write songs in Jordy. And hearing him on the rock on tours with Guy Pratt and Gary Kemp, who've been on our show, it's like the first song he ever wrote in his life was You Shook Me All Night Long. What? So not only are we, you know, replacing this iconic bad boy rock singer with someone who is relatively unknown to the world, but he's writing his first songs ever and they become a double diamond 50 million selling album. Who saw that coming? Yeah. And, and, you know, people often, you know, parse and complain and, and like, you know, break it down and say, oh, Brian didn't, you know, wasn't quite the poet that Bond was. And sure, that's fine. But, you know, we got to realize mixed into all this is all the murkiness of, well, Malcolm and Angus are probably involved in the lyrics, too. Yes. Right. And then later, wait, all of them basically more so. But and then who knows who else is kind of throwing in lines and helping. Right. But but the point is, is, is as a kid, I mean, it just seemed like business as usual at the lyric end. It seemed like we're just getting more of the same thing. Yeah, now, I've got a question. First of all, a couple of cool things, because, again, there's all this great detail in the books. Right. And you get to learn things that you didn't know before. One that I thought was cool was. The Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap line comes from a cartoon that Angus used to watch as a kid where there's a character on the Beanie and Cecil cartoon called Dishonest John that had a business card that said Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap on it. Like, that's where that came from, a kid's cartoon? That's pretty cool. That's brilliant, yeah. Dirty 
Actually, I have to ask you, Jackson, is what I didn't realize is because they, they got a foothold in Texas in the 70s, did some gigs down there, especially in San Antonio, where Jackson used to live. He said there was a DJ, Joe Anthony, who made San Antonio basically a rock, hard rock, heavy metal capital in the 70s. I had no idea about that because you think about Texas, eh, you know, they, they could be hardcore country or they could be hardcore. I ain't listened to that, but. Did you know about this guy, Jackson? I didn't know about that guy, but it, it was very weird because I moved there in 2000 and I was I was with you. I'm like, well, we're going to have to pick from country or Western down here. But no, it was a big rock town. So I, I didn't know the the uh, history of it, but it, it's definitely true. There's a lot of hard rock guys down there. He was as far as I knew, he was gone by the time I got there. But that spirit definitely still lived on. Oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, basically, Budgie's fondest memories of America at all are playing in Texas and being superstars there. Saxon did great in Texas and Moxie up here. I mean, that's the only place in all of America. Moxie from Toronto did great. They got huge crowds down there. So basically, and I think that's where there might even be a Moxie story in the book. And maybe I got Earl mentioning this. I think I have mentioned it. So so basically ACDC backed up Moxie right down there. Um, so yeah, right. um, and not only Budgie, but I mean, there were there were a number of or Saxon and Budgie, but there were a number of new wave of British heavy metal bands who said, you know, that was our that was our biggest market down there, where we were treated somewhat as heroes and got huge crowds. Yeah, yeah, I think that was the first time I'd ever heard of both of those Saxon and Moxie was when I got there, and people would talk about them. I never even heard of these bands before, so yeah, yeah definitely still percolating around as a real true rock and roll kind of safe place in the middle of in the middle of the country yeah neat all right so you get into the 80s all right back in black's huge for those about to rock has the big title track but it's not an amazing album beyond that it ends up selling pretty well but not nearly compared to you know back in black it's like after fleetwood mac does rumors who cares if they sell six million copies of tusk it does it's not rumors you know kind of thing and then yeah like you say they start to self-produce a little bit Maybe Brian doesn't deliver the goods on the lyrics when you go through some of that fly on the wall, flick of the switch, you know, blow up your video. I like Heat Seeker, but most of the rest of it was kind of eh. So like the 80s, they're titans, but they're kind of trading on their past, right? Uh, a little bit. Although, and you bring it up in the book, I mean, I'm like, you know, th- all these things kind of go platinum and then that's it. They go gold and then eventually they kind of get the platinum and that's it. However, <laughs> who made who? with basically one new song on it. And then it's kind of a compilation, not quite a greatest hits, but the, so two part question, you know, how in the world, I, I guess it sold well because it was a semi greatest hits. And then it also has one pretty good new song on it with who made who with the inestimable uh, Emilio Estevez starring in the film, Maximum Overdrive, which kids my age at the time, I'm a teenager. We're digging that. You're a little older at that point. Like this is crap. Why would they even do this? Well, it's because Stephen King, another notoriously prolific writer and a musician dug ACDC, right? He went, you told the story, he went down to Compass Point to see them, how they're doing, you know, some of these songs on it. But do you know why they said we're never going to do a greatest hits album? Hmm. Um, not exactly. I mean, uh, so, so, so a couple things here. So 
I think that whole stance was was a little bit of we're just a, we're a band from the street. We're trying to be anti-commercial. It, it's putting up this whole narrative that we are absolutely a working class band and that that thing is ripping off our fans and all this sort of thing. So okay. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's that. But it was great. That song is an excellent, excellent song. So it's, you know, and, and they're still a pretty big band at this point. They still are a gold and platinum act. So this thing comes out and it's associated with a movie, you know, and it's in it's right in the middle of a hair metal and a lot of albums are selling a lot um so it's it's almost like the old formula from the mid 70s with a band like sweet where ah, let's just put out a standalone single sort of thing it's just song that just gets them news mm-hmm. right for for a while so it's it's an amazing song and you know it dare i say it might even be the song that sets up you know the great success of the razor's edge maybe uh, again, you know where there's still r- residual excitement about that, that guitar bit is is kind of a precursor i would say to uh, thunderstruck yeah a little bit you know and i i've also you know i i went through this whole i won't do the whole boring story but uh on on my podcast i explained this whole thing about how basically through the 80s acdc was touring back in black because every time you went out even with a new album shortly thereafter after you were you were actually you know on on blow up your video or on uh on um, fly on the wall a few months into the tour you were selling more copies of back in black than you were of the current album that's right like well that's kind of what you're pushing because the record label doesn't care you know it's 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 still 7.99 it's a it's one record it's a unit it doesn't matter what unit it is yeah (laughs) yeah so so it's like you're out on tour and and if if uh if you literally are more successful in promoting an album that's three records ago that's great just keep keep promoting it Yeah. yeah exactly well and you know i don't want to talk badly about simon wright but i mean he was not Phil Rudd. He might have been okay live, but I don't think in the studio he really did anything to really up the, the level. But then when you get to Razor's Edge and you get to Chris Slade, who has been on our show and who has played with an amazing number of, of legends over the years, he did bring something pretty special to it. You even remark about the book. It's like, even compared to Phil, he's doing, he's providing some kind of really heavy backbeat there that really lets Malcolm and Angus do their thing. Hi guys, this is Chris Slade, drummer of ACDC and many others, and you're listening to the ugly, I mean really ugly, Werewolf in London. <laughs> hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. You know, it's it's natural to say that is down to him and whatever Simon's shortcomings are down to Simon. Right. But the fact of the matter is you listen to Simon on Dio albums and he's great. He's, he's pretty so, good. He's, yeah. he's technical. He's got great groove and all this. So so it's almost like in this particular band, any of our praise or or dissatisfaction with any drummer is almost like 33 percent the drummer. 
33% the producer and 33% what Angus and Malcolm want, right? Right. So, so you know, if they're telling him to do four on the floor and take that fill out or whatever, or, or just less symbols or something or, or whatever, right? Or, or, or here's, I want two bass drum beats here when, mm-hmm. instead of one or what, you know, and that could be anybody telling him to do that. So, so, you know, I, I, um, I don't go for this romanticizing of Phil Rudd. I, I just, I just think uh, all of them could have done whatever right it's it's this whole thing that that i i really get upset when people say some prog drummer oh you but you can't do ringo star there's a magic of ringo that prog drummer could do ringo star in his sleep and he could do like (laughs) five versions of ringo star in one song (laughs) and you wouldn't be able to tell which is and you'd say these two are better than ringo's performance and these three are worse or whatever but but it's like oh you want ringo yeah i'll give you ringo there's there's no you know this whole thing about oh you can't do peter chris or something right Mm -hmm. they can (laughs) so so like to be able to do to to be able to just give what ACDC needs. It's like literally down to, I mean, it, 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 it could even be what amplifiers the guitarists are using or, or where you want to put the guitars in the mix this time out. Right. Are they a little higher than the drums? Are they a little lower? It's like, and then all of a sudden we're thinking, Oh, the drums sound great and powerful. It's like, well, they didn't do anything different really. They, they turned the guitars up or whatever. Right. So right. yeah, I don't know. It's, it's the simplest job in all of rock. Right. I mean, it literally is. Yeah. Uh, Drumming for ACDC for for a drummer is the simplest. I can't think of a simpler. I don't even think Fleetwood Mac's simpler. Fleetwood Mac and Eagles, I always put down as well. And I I think Don Henley's just a terrible drummer, right? Anyway, (laughs) he's just busy singing. He was, you know, it was. He just needed to keep the beat so his vocals sounded good. That's all he needed to do. Well, they had bad production too, from what's his name, Simpson Johnson. Oh, you don't like Simpson's production? I I find all those albums just sound cardboardy and humorless and unimaginative and just nothing, nothing. But wasn't he? following their direction they do compare them versus again the same thing same thing right it, it, who knows who knows when you get a production who who made it that way right yeah but glenn johns is more like no we're not doing what you want we're doing what i want we're putting the echo on and i'm doing the drums this yeah. way so they fire him they bring in zimzik because he would do exactly what they wanted right. but are they better i don't know yeah and then there's an engineer, right? Sometimes the engineer is the secret weapon, right? Jackson's my secret weapon. Yeah, well, <laughs> at least I can do something. You know, to stick up for Chris Slade, he did, he was the one that came up with the idea of mounting the two bass drums by his head. And whether that was actually part of the recording, I don't know, but it definitely looked cool. <laughs> and it definitely had that that extra rock. It just, the showmanship to that was always pretty cool to me. But you know, that, that, that really came, cool production sound yeah. and that tightness and everything on that. I mean, it's probably, I would almost say it's more Bruce Fairburn's mm. vision than Chris Slade's vision. I'm sure. I mean, mm-hmm. Chris didn't come in, come into ACDC sounding like that or saying, this is what I want to do. Right. <laughs> That's right. He's yeah. like an old dude. Right. So, so it's like, there's, there's no way. I mean, I, I'm sure that was a Bruce Fairburn thing, but then when I think about it, it's like Bruce Fairburn is still really pretty, pretty young at that point. He he hasn't done a lot of, well, I, no, I guess not. I mean, he's he, a few he's, things. Yeah. He's been around for 10 years. Hey, I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, sorry. I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, yeah, he's he actually got a lot under his belt by that point, yeah. but, um, but it all sure doesn't sound like that either. That's the other things.
No, but this is the album that, that put them back on top to stay, right? Because they had some misfires on those albums. They come out thunderstruck, epic, one of the greatest songs they ever do. Plus, they go to Donington, play live, and then they do ACDC Live, which becomes their de facto greatest hits album. Now, you say, hey, nobody really was excited about it. But that's not true because we were in college at the time living together. And I remember the day it came out, getting up and going to the record store, couldn't afford the double album. My buddy Rob from Boston, he bought it and he lorded it over me because it had the Angus Buck in it. But it was the first time you had recordings really of Brian doing Bond stuff and to have them all in one place, you know, and visually, thanks to Chris, they're exciting behind the drums and Angus running around the whole stage. So the sales of both of those kind of put them back up and it was right before grunge hit right so they, yeah. they didn't get mixed in with everybody who got thrown out with grunge they were then i don't know grandfathered in you know not only from the stuff they did in the 70s and back in black but it's like yeah but they're still relevant now because they got this razor's edge which is their best effort in years yeah and it really is i mean it, it's a really lively album and the other the other band that has that freak career pattern is uh is ozzy right with osmosis yep. at that point right you know grunge is coming in boom you have a massive hit right bigger than your your last two albums right exactly the same as acdc so yeah and it's it's, it was beautifully recorded yeah and the drumming's great on it and uh and and the songs are snappy and there's a lot of variety on there there's some slow ones some fast ones jokey ones a christmas tune (laughs) it's it's got everything and say the only thing missing is uh is an apostrophe in the razor's edge right it's the only (laughs) only crappy thing about it so, and, an, and another bad uh, album cover right i we always we do these album cover shows and it's like foreigner acdc and uh and def leppard have the worst album covers of everybody so <laughs> i have some people who will fight with you on that in fact i've got to set up a show between you our buddy neil from def lep pod and your countryman uh chris from my rock and roll heaven he's at rock these treats those two are the two biggest def leppard fans on the planet i would love to just Throw up some, just a few questions that don't really matter to me, but you'd be on one side and those two be like, oh, yeah, yeah. you don't know what you're talking about. Kind of yeah. He's going to say, throw the question up and get out yeah, of the way. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, and then, you know, look, after that, they're huge and they're, they're Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, forever. They, they, they could put out an album or not put out an album. They could tour or not tour. People are going to sell out. People are going to love it. I hadn't realized one note that Stevie, of course, Stevie Young had to replace Malcolm after he passed away. I didn't realize that he had replaced him for a little bit when he was in rehab in, in the late 80s. And, you know, that that's cool to know that they wanted to keep it in the family back then. And he even wore his hair kind of long. So maybe maybe nobody would notice kind of thing. But it did give Mal a chance to put himself back together. And then the result was the Razor's Edge, which allowed the band to, in my opinion, to keep going until this day. Yeah, but they really started spreading out the albums. And then the albums got a little, you know, I, that that whole period in there. I, and basically those two albums, because I think I, I've just always liked Black Ice. I always thought Black Ice mm-hmm. was really good. I hate Rock good. or Bust. But, um, yeah, but, but the, you know, Ball Breaker and Stiff Upper Lip, I, I always liken them to uh, what Foghat did. And what status quo did and okay. where they where they both like moved from their 70s sound and and decided to make a poppy version of boogie rock uh, right? okay. of, of old rootsy rock. Right. So Foghat, you get into those 80s albums 
And, and it's like a kind of like a flippant new wave version of being a boogie band. Right. And then yeah. status quo just, just kind of, kind of cleans up the guitars a little and makes everything a little more quaint and a little more humorous. And, and that's what I feel you get on, on those two ACDC albums. You, you start getting this uh, and it, it bothers me about power up too. You know, I liked it when it first came out and I was excited and, and the, the enthusiasms waned a little because I'm just feeling like there's something there's something missing in the guitar tones. They've just cleaned them up a little too much that, that, it, that it doesn't, it doesn't sound heavy, even though they're writing heavy songs right. and even, even the ones, even stiff upper lip and ball breaker are, are like this as well. The songs are written exactly as heavy as all the other ACDC songs, but they're just really tame in the, in the production. Gotcha. Yeah. There's something to be said there. And I think we need to have you back on to talk status quo sometime. Cause you know, being that I was in the UK uh, you know, we, we do a lot of dichotomies, like some people make it in the US, but not in the UK and vice versa. Even if they're from that country, they might do better in the other one. And status quo is one that they're like, they're a rock and roll Hall of Fame kind of band in the UK. In America, I can't get anybody to give me, what's your favorite status quo song? Like, I've never even heard of that band. I'm like, they're a huge <laughs> band. They are huge. My, my favorite 60 seconds of all of rock and roll is by status quo. And what's that? It's... It's when in in uh, backwater, yeah, that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the first song on "Quo Quo," the seventy six album, right? Okay. Um, you know, that one, right? Yes, yeah, called backwater. Yes, yeah, backwater. Just take me. That's right. You so, gotta, t- I gotta so, take your word for it, man. I don't know. So, so what <laughs> happens is, what happens is, I I play this. God, I, it seems like I play it once a week, walking around with my earbuds on or whatever, because it just just puts a smile on my face. So, what happens in that is. There's this guitar solo section and it's kind of kind of like it's almost Benny Hillish, right? It's it's, <laughs> it's like a little silly and melodic and it's going along. It's not very technical or whatever. So there's this long guitar solo and it's building and building and building and building. And he comes out of it and resolves and they go back into another verse. And it's one of those actual moments where where you really feel like they sped up the song a tiny bit and it's heavy as hell, right? I just love it to death. And then, and then I, I could easily put in my top 10, they do the same thing on the next song. Just take me where they have this long solo section again, and they pop out of it into a verse again. And it's amazing. And then I also basically say little lady is the most powerful boogie song ever made. It's just so heavy for a boogie. And okay. da- and down down as well, but those those three those three moments, little lady, basically when little lady kicks in, but it's powerful throughout. In fact, on little lady, I think they do the same thing where the most magic moment of that song is when they come out of a solo. I don't think they're going into a verse there, but yeah, okay. just check out check out the tail end of that solo section on backwater, the tail end on the solo section to just take me and just, just little lady exploding from the beginning. And it's just incredible. Just, yeah, just, I just love those guys to death. Interviewed them, met them, all that stuff, you know, uh, the, the rare times they've ever been to Toronto. So that's awesome. That's great. 
Uh, well, Mark, we can't thank you enough for coming on the show. And the book is beautiful. Why don't you tell people Thanks. where they can find it and find all your other great books? Yeah. So martinpopoff.com. I've had the .com forever. I mean, more than half my income in any given year is me being a mail order guy, my own books. So uh, there's there's PayPal buttons there for Canada, US, international. I sign them, send them out from the office. So anything of my books that are in print, any of the books that are in print, which is probably 80 titles or whatever, I've got and I ship them out of the office here. So yeah, martinpopoff.com. Excellent. Well, all the best success with the book. And I know you're working on some more. Uh, I have a feeling when that Kiss book comes out, we're going to be listening to you on the Shout It Out Loudcast with Tom and Zeus. <laughs> At least yeah, it's in yeah. your best interest to do so, bud. They're, they're yeah, the number yeah. one Kiss podcast on the planet. Thank you kindly, Martin. We appreciate it very much. We appreciate all the work you've done to keep rock alive and get the stories to the rockheads like us who can't get enough of it. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Very cool. Thank you. Good guy, that Martin Popoff. Heck of a writer. Yeah. Yeah. And and like you said, this book, you don't, it's a great read, but you don't even have to read it. You can just, you can enjoy it just for the pictures. Exactly. And and the the pictures of the band, the pictures of the 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 you know the buttons, the memorabilia, the album covers, the uh, ticket stubs. It just gives a real great history of the of the band throughout the years. Yeah, it's not like a biography where there's like 150 pages, and then there's eight pages of photos, and then there's another 150 pages. Right. It, yeah. There's photos throughout, you know, whether it's the band or the album covers or the stickers or all that kind of fun stuff. And, and it allows you to kind of skip because it's about 50 moments. And yes, some of it's about that album or that tour or that point in time. But you can just go and pick out like, well, you know, I, I don't know much about Fly on the Wall. Why don't I mm -hmm. just go read that bit? And it's it's two or three pages. It's easy to do. And plus, you'll see some clips or you know, photos of the guys from that time. So Really yeah. cool book, you know, great addition to anybody's rock collection. Yeah. So, so my, my point on that was going to be that that was one of the things that I really found interesting was that in between time between, uh, for those about to rock and, um, who made who kind of when they came back that in between where it was a little, eh, a little shaky to, uh, as far as commercially being viable, so definitely gonna go back and check out fly, uh, flick the switch. That was our show with the legendary rock writer Martin Popoff of Canada. Definitely check out his website, martinpopoff.com, and order yourself one or several of his great tomes. I mean, this ACDC coffee table book is amazing. But like he said, he's got more than 80 in print. Go find one on the band that you love and check it out. He's a great writer. He makes it fun. And this book in particular is great because of all the different stories from all over the years. And like I said, throughout the broadcast there, great pictures, great stuff that you won't find anywhere. I mean, if you're a big ACDC fan, you ought to have this. But even if you're a casual one, this is a great book for you. It's engaging. It's got all the fun pictures in it, and I think you'll really like it. I can't wait to get my hard copy here very soon. And make sure you also check out his great podcast, History in Five Songs with Martin Popoff, a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network, of which we are proudly a part, and we're proud to be a part of, of any network that includes Martin Popoff and so many of the other great broadcasts on there. ACDC are legends. They always will be. They never compromise. They always stuck to their guns, and they fired their guns. They may be a little long in the tooth now. I don't know how many more opportunities we're going to have any of us to see ACDC ever again, but if they come to your town, you really don't want to miss it. I've seen them about four times. So glad that I did. 
So we want to know, folks, in this show, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we miss the point? Did we leave out your favorite part? Did we miss an opportunity to ask a poignant question of Martin? You have to tell us. You have to email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You can let us know the concerts, the bands, the albums, the books, the rock properties that you want us to review. And please follow us at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. You can tweet us. You can DM us. We're also on Instagram. I believe that we're on Facebook somehow. We're certainly on YouTube. And if you're thinking about it, folks, don't just download and subscribe, but give us a positive review. If you're out there on Apple or Spotify or Good Pods or anywhere you get your podcasts, please give us a positive review. Those five-star reviews go a long way to helping us find more rock and roll fans like you and helps us get more great guests like Martin and the artists that created the music. So thanks as always to Pantheon Podcast, and thanks as always to our sponsor, RareVinyl.com. Whether you're looking for something from ACDC or anybody else, use the code UGLY, go to RareVinyl.com, and you can save 10% off your orders. Now next week, we have more hard rock and heavy metal for you. Not going to reveal it, but let's just say there's a big album that's turning 40, and we've got a very special guest who's going to tell us some great stories about his relationship with this band that I think we all know and love. So until next time, to all you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.